Hi everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Innovation Deciphered and today I'm going to be joined by Claire Smith, the editor of New Civil Engineering magazine and we've got an interesting array of topics to talk about starting with Claire's perspective on how uh, innovation has changed throughout her career, her 25 year career and in particular uh, reflecting on the, re the research she did for an event celebrating the 50th anniversary of New Civil Engineering magazine where she went back over the archives and there's one or two utter disasters from which she thinks has stimulated lots of innovation, we'll be hearing about that. We'll also be hearing about the latest, uh, uh, what she found out at the Tech Fest which was uh, very recent. And finally, her reflections on uh, how uh, the gender mix is changing in construction uh, and how that is beneficial not only to the industry but society as a whole. So, without any further ado, let's get stuck in. We organised this uh, recording, or at least we suggested it, at the NCE 50th anniversary evening reception. Yeah, so back in May last back year. Back in May. <laughs> and both of us are so massively busy that staying this long, this has been recorded in November by the way, at the end of November, uh, to get us together. And this, as this new, this new season of our podcast is all about innovation, innovation management. And really, I'm really interested in your perspective, looking back, let's say, on what you've seen and what you learned researching that event around what's happened over the last 50 years, perhaps in the industry, and then we move on to some more, uh, what it's been like to work in the industry, perhaps over the last 25 years, and yeah. you've seen it change. Yeah, so it was really interesting researching all the stuff for the 50th anniversary. We went all the way back through all the old issues, looking at milestone events. So um, one of the journalists I work with made a comment about NCE being ambulance chasers. So there were a lot of collapses and failures and things like that, as well as engineering successes. But I think those failures are really, really important to actually understand about what went wrong and understand how we can improve and things like that. And looking at innovation, where the risks are and that kind of thing. Yes, because I know one of the big failures that's happened during my career was the Heathrow Tunnel collapse. Yes. Back in the mid-90s. 94. I was in the first year of my degree, so we were following it very closely in NCE. So. Yeah, I mean, the personal anecdote about that, because at the time I was in a joint venture and I was in a Balfour BT office when the phone went and mm. this had happened. And of course, it was a very interesting... <laughs> Very stressful for everybody at the time, but there was a massive energy going into solving that problem that I just witnessed, but I was very close to it, not at the coalface, but at the, from the office side of things at the time. But what was your perspective about how engineering moved forward? That. Yeah, so it's interesting. So it came up at a tunnelling roundtable that I organised recently that was actually looking at how tunnelling industry had changed over the 50 years as part of the 50th anniversary celebrations. And we were again looking at milestone events. So the Channel Tunnel opening of that in 1994 came out 
you know, that had been attempted so many times, but the innovation had finally caught up with the ambition. But then the Heathrow Collapse came out as also being a milestone event. But people were talking about it, how it was an awful situation at the time, but all the analysis that went into what went wrong and understanding the straight concrete linings in more detail really enabled the Crossrail to happen in the way it did. And they were saying almost if the Heathrow Collapse hadn't happened, that perhaps Crossrail wouldn't have been delivered as it was, which I found really fascinating. Yes, and I sort of had a peripheral involvement in all of those projects one way or another mm. and there's been a massive, massive movement over, the, over my career around data analysis, instrumentation yeah. and now there's a massive, unbelievable quantities of data collected mm. but it's also analysed in real time now. Yeah, so I think that's a real difference when you go back to Heathrow Collapse there were monitors and there were, there were lots of sensors there. So there was an awful lot of data, but there wasn't the ability to actually analyse it and understand it quickly. So was that, is that through technology that's enabled that, or is it the protocols have been developed to I think it's a little, little bit of both. So yeah. I think the technology is there to analyse it and produce and work out whether it's a, something you should be aware of, something you need to take action on, or whether it's fine. So that's the real difference. Yes, because I, in terms of what you see, say, on uh, the Crossrail, compared with what you read about on the Heathrow Express, what do you think are the real differences? I think there was that far more knowledge about what the risks were going into it. So there was a lot more instrumentation done, a lot more grounding done ahead of the works to try and just prevent anything happening. So I mean, I think obviously the Jubilee line in the 90s, that was another key one. We're tunnelling under um, the Queen Elizabeth Tower for Big Ben. That was a really high profile job that really put data and analysis and monitoring to the forefront of the work. That's right, there was a lot of work done at Imperial by John Berland. I remember he, he had his, I won't say his party pieces, <laughs> but we used to have this great presentation about it and all the work they did to analyse it. They got exactly the movement right. Yeah. Just the direction wrong by 180 degrees. But that was in the modding the stiffness of the clay, it was stiffer than they thought. Mm -hmm. So, that, But again, that shows how it's moved on again. Yes. Because, of course, Crossway itself is another step forward in terms of the scale of the caverns that produce and as far as I'm aware there wasn't any undue problems at service level that weren't corrected by I guess we, we might find out in the courts in the next few years not that I'm aware of no so, I mean, it, so it's uh, completely successful or so successful you wouldn't, wouldn't notice as a no. passerby no, but it's open now, and I think when you go down there and look at the scale of those cabins, it's quite breathtaking. They're almost like cathedrals, aren't they, to underground space? They are, and I know, I mean, for instance, all the spray concrete uh, tunnel work there, which has created those caverns, the, the procedures used there were massively influenced over what had been learned from HEX. Yes, yeah, uh, definitely in terms of aid controlling the movement, also safety of actually constructing the things from the operatives' mm -hmm. point of view. I know there was a tragedy, but uh, it was largely successful. Yes, 
Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, big, big, amazing project. So there, there's, in a sense, I suppose the debate is that innovation can be stimulated by overcoming a disaster, mm-hmm. which definitely. Was, definitely was. What about the, do you see innovate, have you seen a, a trend in other parts of innovation in the construction sector? Obviously, we're talking about tunnels, but... there about the data analysis, and I think that's the real change, is data flows through the whole construction process now, and it's far more technology-led than the analysis of the design, even, before you get onto the construction site, as well as analysing what's happening when you're building it. So it flows all the way through, but the one area I think perhaps we're not ha- it's not happening enough is the data flowing through into the operation. It ends up being siloed, or companies aren't sharing data. Yes. So we've seen that in our work where there's huge amounts of data produced, not only of the finished article now, Mm. with these 3D twins and what have you, but there's also a lot of data about how you get there, how you get to the finished article, and how the thing's built, the the progress time. Uh, there's There's technology out there that's literally videoing everything as it goes on. You can, it counts the number of trucks going through the gate and mm-hmm. all these sort of spotting has safety hazards, but you know, that's all in the pipeline. But what I think is even more interesting, before that, people are using that technology to actually rehearse the construction. So they're actually using that to help with the safety. They're actually allowing operatives to see how things are going to build the sequencing. And it really helps unlock whether there's a problem on site. So you're reducing the number of errors on the site. So it's that concept of the 3D method statement. Yes, the 4D, exactly. The 4D method Yes, because you've got the time involved as well, yeah. So I think there's lots more movement. So a lot of major projects use that at the moment, but I think we will gradually see that filtering down to smaller projects. And I know what some of that, I think that that's also reflected in what a working day or working life mm. looks like. Because yeah. uh, I know when we were having our discussions before this with our editor, Ashlyn, who's... Um, well, I think I'm older than her parents. Uh, <laughs> she's definitely young enough with my daughter. But we were reflecting back on what our yeah, working lives were like. Exactly. So changed. a generation ago, 25 or 35 years ago, you know, no one had a computer. Well, there was one in the corner that was used yeah. for some sort of simple analysis. Yeah, we had. Do- I mean, we had one computer between about five of us, but there would be days where it didn't get switched on. And I had a secretary to type up my reports. Yep. and a stack of 20p's to call the office if something went wrong on site. I can remember the days where I used to be travelling from site to site during the day. I was working in the piling industry and if the, the office wanted to get a message to you, they would ring the concrete batcher and say, well, the next time the, the foreman rings you, could you ask him to pass a message on that we'd like to speak to Tim? Yeah. Okay. It speaks to the youth of today, yeah. they wouldn't believe it. No, it feels like a lifetime ago, but that's only going back 25 years. So I think it's easy to think the construction industry hasn't taken up technology, but it has come quite a long way. Maybe not as fast as some of some other industries, but it is moving that way. And I think the pandemic was certainly was a driver for the faster uptake of technology. There's no doubt about that, because I think we've seen it with our clients and ourselves that where there may have been some resistance, for instance, something as simple, and it sounds quite ludicrous now as a, as a 
video conferencing or a Teams call. But how many people were using Teams before March 2020? We'd just started maybe in February 2020, but we didn't really know We had the technology, but I didn't use it. No. On the, whatever it was, the 18th of March, within 10 minutes, I worked out how to use it and that was never looked back. No, exactly. Because we had no choice. And now, of course, you suddenly realise, well, for a lot of things, it's massively more efficient. Mm. But I think also the technology that we've got means that people can collaborate more easily. They don't have to be in the same office. They don't have to be even in the same time zone. But they can collaborate and bring their skills into a project more easily that way. No, that's right. So we, you're quite right, because we've got customers over eight time zones. So do you ever get to sleep? <laughs> yeah, look, that's actually a very important point, because... You can communicate with people who are eight hours, in our case, behind us, but it's not practical in the long run. No. Because you can only, unless you want to, if you're working a normal shift in the UK and you've got clients in Vancouver, which we have, uh, you can only really talk to them very early in their morning. Mm -hmm. Which is get, quite late in your day. Otherwise you get a very, very extended working day. And, uh, uh, that's once the blue moon you can do it you can't really plan to do that but that's one of the reasons why I've seen MCE change I mean we've gone from being weekly to being monthly but when I was doing some research for the 50th anniversary it turned out it was originally a monthly magazine it was only the recruitment side of the business that drove it to become weekly but now, of course, we've gone back to monthly. But effectively, we're like a daily news service because we have online news. We're putting out 10 news stories a day. But everyone wants everything instantly. It's like something happened over the weekend. So why haven't you written a news story about it? So it is that thing. Everyone wants information instantly. So that is the challenge with data, isn't it? Yeah, the it? world has sped up. Yes. Way, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Because everything's quicker now. I mean, if you think what you can do on the phone, Mm. Or, you know, so I could absolutely manage my business on the phone. But it's basically a mini computer in your pocket. Yeah, quite a powerful one, as it turns out. So there's, and you're right, the way the working environment has changed over our careers mm. is massive. This changed a lot in the past yeah. two, two and a half years because of the pandemic and our response to it. But I do wonder whether the greater move to technology means that we might become more of an attractive industry for people to come into. Because that's always been a challenge, hasn't it? Attracting new people into the sector. It is. Um, and of course, because it's associated with A, being noisy, dirty, dangerous, mm -hmm. all of which is partly true. But it's definitely not anymore. There are a lot of desk-based jobs. There's many, many. Oh, you don't have course, to I'm sure it won't be long before all the machines are driven remotely. If you can fly a drone into mm. a power station remotely, why can't you drive a digger remotely with all the right yes. sensors and things? So going back to that Tony round table, they were talking about the fact they've got um, automatic machinery for placing the segments, the concrete segments in the tunnel. Saying so how long will it be before they're all driven remotely by robots? So you don't actually need to go down there. Well, it won't be that long, I don't suppose. I don't suppose. So, MC's 75th anniversary, maybe we'll be writing about that? You may be writing about <laughs> so it. I'll be hobbling in. I don't think I'll be editor there. <laughs> I'll be hobbling in to that one. Um, but, yeah, at least we can look forward to that and say, what, what would it be like in 25 years' time? Mm -hmm. Let's just move on a little bit, because I know 
whilst we're recording this, Tempfest was last week. We've got yeah. some observations about that. Yeah, it's really interesting, sort of like how many people are really engaged in how the innovations have changed in the industry. But I think you've only got a very small group of the industry there who are really engaged in innovation. A lot of people are kind of still not kind of looking at what they're doing. They're still so focused on the day-to-day jobs. But I think there's this concern that innovation means that you've got to retrain and relearn how to do your job. So people, the technology providers really need to focus on things that are easy to use that actually make a difference in terms of efficiency and productivity. Because like if you've got to lose a couple of weeks to go and train to use a new bit of software, where's the productivity gain in that? Well, I think a lot of those things you have to, the providers have to demonstrate the ROI. Mm. That's, that's one thing for yeah. sure. I think the other thing, your point you were making around people have to retrain. Yes. Well, I remember I, a few years ago now. I uh, I judged one of the one of the uh, sectors, one of the one of the prizes at Techfest, and this one it was very interesting because all the technology had been prov- was there. But it was actually no one was looking at the data. Yeah. In in the right way, so that a lot of innovation, I think, sometimes is asking the right question. Yeah. If you can ask the right question, then you've got half a chance of gathering the data to answer that question. So it's quite interesting. A lot of people talk about construction projects and focusing on the outcome of those. And I think that's the thing we need to start thinking about the outcome when we're looking at data. Where are we trying to get to? What kind of information are we trying to get? Yeah. What's and the question you're trying to answer? Yeah. What's the big question? And that isn't anything to do really with the technology. The technology is the enabler. Mm-hmm. If the data is being gathered or you need another sensor, if you know what the questions you want answered, then you can ask someone to yeah. either create the sensor or install it and then get a routine for analysing the data. Yeah, because I mean, some of the innovations that were coming out at TechFest were quite straightforward. You're thinking, well, why have we been doing that before? I mean, that's what I love about TechFest, is it's a chance to actually shout about some of these innovations that otherwise might fly under the radar. And one of the things I really love is the Innovation Incubator, where we get people who are from startups and SMEs and actually come and present it on the main stage. And so they get a chance to actually show their innovation to a wider audience. And there were a lot of conversations about that. So we had Hypertunnel there and geo-optic um, ground investigations as well. So that, they were really fascinating innovations that could really disrupt the industry. See, the, hy- yeah, the, the hyper-tunnel, I mean, what's your views on that? Because I know our Mr Musk has got a similar idea. I'm not sure quite where, where it's sitting at the moment. So hyper-tunnel, they've got a project with Network Rail, so they're going to be doing a demonstration tunnel next year. And I think that's when it's going to become really interesting, when you can actually see physically how it's built. At the moment, it's a lot of theory. And I think that's where the judges felt that they hadn't quite got there to win this year. But Good idea, but not quite proven. Yeah, I think that's the thing. That is always the problem with the construction industry. They want proven technology. And that's the one thing that does limit us on innovation is, is the risk, isn't it? Particularly on the underground side of things. You're right. Because, I mean, innovation during the construction phase is always imports risk. Mm. So there has to be a massive payback for anyone. Yeah. To really take that risk. But that's why I think HS2 is doing a lot of good work, is they've got this understanding that they're a long-term client. 
and they're trying to make sure that they are bringing forward innovations. So it's like they're working with SES on 3D concrete printing. Not necessarily saying it's the perfect solution for everything, so they're trying to use it on low-risk applications, um, like some waste storage bins they're printing on site, rather than getting precast brought in and testing it and analysing there. So I think it's, it is important that major clients do take on some of that burden and actually try and help prove new technology. Well, for those that haven't seen it, we actually have an episode uh, dedicated to uh, Innovation on speed 2 with Howard, who's the Innovation Director, uh, which was a very fascinating talk, by the way. I haven't seen it, so... No, we haven't I've published it free program. It's in the no. tank. It will be published uh, early in the new year. That's... But, of course, it's not just about technology, how the industry's changing, mm. Claire, because I know that another recent event you chaired was around women in construction, women in the engineering profession. Yes, we came together with Construction News this year to launch the Inspiring Women in Construction Engineering event, and it's really to talk about the gender issues and things like that. So things have moved on tremendously since I joined the industry. So I chaired the event, and we had 250 people in the room and probably 230 women. And I said right from the beginning when I stood up, I have never been at a work event in 25 years, like as an engineer or as a journalist, with so many women in the room. And it was amazing. And the, the feeling in the room was really good as well, the fact that everyone wanted to come together and have, try and make a positive change and work together to do that. And what was... Was that representative of... Well, obviously, it's something to do with there's more women in the sector. Mm-hmm. But to get such a massive uh, swing of the pendulum the other way at an event, obviously it was targeted women, I guess. Yeah, it was. And I think probably what I'd like to see next year is actually the audience being more 50-50. Because it's not women over men, it's about us moving forward together. So you meet male allies in the industry to understand what the challenges are for women so that they can support their staff and actually move forward so we can get more women progressing up through the career ladder and actually retain them because a lot of women go and have a family and then find perhaps working construction and infrastructure doesn't quite fit. Maybe it does a bit more now. We can do the distance working. But um, to try and make sure that people do stay in the industry because I think that's the thing. We need more engineers. So getting more women in the industry has got to be a good way of doing that. You're right, Adam. We've got... We've got two, they're architects, actually, two female architects. Basically, oh, we've got them. toddlers. In fact, no, Sarah is, baby's about five months old, not quite a toddler. Shards, no. Shards has a toddler. So this kind of role, which is essentially office-based or working partly mm. from home. It works well. It works well, yeah. Well, even my wife, who's, we've got two teenagers. It's, it works for my wife as well, Alison. Yeah, so I think that the industry is changing. It's much easier to stay in the sector. And I think that it's not just about getting more women in the industry. I think it's about having the diversity. So you end up with... So it comes back to that outcomes side of things. If you're designing uh, infrastructure, you want to design it for the whole of society. So you actually want the engineers who are working on that to be representative of the people using it. So things get thought about more, about the accessibility and that kind of thing. Uh, I think you're right. There's, the more the workplace represents this, 
the society you're in, I think it's probably better for everybody, and also the pool of people that are available. Mm. Then and the type, of, yeah, the type of solutions you get as well. Yeah, you're right. They're really right. different. Anyway, Claire, that's been a fascinating <laughs> discussion around your perspectives on how the industry has innovated over the past 50 years or 25 to 50 years because um, you've got this great overview. So thank you very much uh, for your time today and... Thank you for having me. It's you're most great. welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.